Who do you look for to tell about Jesus? Who are you excited about if you hear this person has trusted Christ? Maybe not personally, but a lot of people who profess to be Christians tend to get excited if it's someone famous, someone rich, someone powerful, someone who can do something with their testimony. When you're giving the gospel, how do you do it? Do you jump from, hi, how are you, to you need to believe in Jesus, or are there any steps in between? I think sometimes we're tempted to just make that quick jump from, hi, to here's a tract, and then go. But as we look at this story, Jesus does neither of these things. He doesn't seek out someone who's rich and powerful and and well-known. He doesn't talk to her in a way that jumps immediately from a greeting to believe in me, but he uh, deals with her conversation, her, the, the, the statements, the questions that she has, and then moves her from curiosity about why is this Jewish man speaking to me, given our ethnic and religious differences, all the way to Jesus saying, basically, as we saw in our scripture reading, believe in me. I am God, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior. In John 4, we see that Jesus, as Israel, brings salvation to the world. Consider the setting. Jesus leaves Judea. We looked at that two weeks ago. The issue of of baptism. He leaves not because he's afraid of the Pharisees, but because it's not yet his time to be crucified. He leaves because it is God's purpose. He had to pass through Samaria. It is God's plan that this distant descendant and heir of Jacob, rather Israel, would come to this spot where there was so much history, where Jacob had dug a well, where Joseph had inherited it, and where Joseph had been buried, and now where Jacob had descendants of his own who are idolatrous, worshiping God in a false way, who are sinful, who are lost, who are without hope. Jesus had to pass through Samaria, come to this spot, and point these people that all of the well-recognized and ethnically pure and everything else, all of those Jews look down on the Samaritans, and yet Jesus brings and offers salvation to them. As a perfect man, but yet a man, Jesus is tired and he's thirsty, so he sits down by the well. As God, knowing the details of the life of the woman he's about to meet, he prepares to speak. Let's look at their conversation together. The first truth we see from this passage is that Jesus, the gift of God, gives living water. We see this in verses 1 through 15. We start out with this idea of curiosity in verse 7 and 10 and 9. Jews didn't usually associate with Samaritans. So Jesus is sitting here. The woman comes up. Jesus says, give me a drink. The woman says, why are you talking to me? So it starts with curiosity. More background on on what's going on here. Israel had wandered into idolatry and never really came back after the kingdom divided under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Solomon said, Rehoboam is going to be the next king. Rehoboam ignored the wise counsel of his advisors and said, my father is 
He gave you taxes, I'm going to give you more taxes. He gave you labor, I'm going to give you more labor. And the ten northern tribes break off and they go with and follow after Jeroboam. Jeroboam says, well, if we have people going down and worshiping at the tabernacle, at the temple, that's going to lead them back to possibly being reconciled with Rehoboam. So in order to keep the people from being reconciled, he establishes his own religious system. This continues for generations. And so God sends the Assyrians to punish the idolatry of the Israelites. And part of the Assyrians' uh, policy on nations that they had conquered was to send people uh, to live in the land and to intermarry with the people of the land. And once they had sort of become both Assyrian and the people of the land, once these two groups had mixed together, there was less likely to be a rebellion, an opposition to their rule. And so they send people back. We see this, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 through 41. I'll read you a few excerpts from that. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, and Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. There were problems. God sends disaster and plague upon them. And so they said, well, we've made the God of this land angry. Let's find a priest. So they find a priest. And verse 28, one of the priests they carried into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. It says they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who served for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day they do not do according to the, they do according to the earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel. Verse 41, While these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, their children likewise, and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So we have a mixing of the peoples, which was not in and of itself, the goal was never racial purity. It was not some sort of uh, ethnic supremacy that God taught the Israelites. God's concern was, if you intermarry with the peoples of the land, they are going to lead you astray into idolatry. You're going to end up with, at best, mixed worship, which is still offensive to God, and at worst, you're just going to abandon me completely. The Samaritans landed at the sort of mediating point. Worship God, but also worship all the idols of the nations around them. Worship God, but come up with our own priesthood. Worship God, but worship in this place instead of at the temple in Jerusalem. That's the background of, of what we're going to see in a few minutes. As a result, the Jews despised the Samaritans for their competing religious system, for their sinful ways, for their impure status as not really full Israelites anymore. And yet Jesus says to this woman, all those things being true, give me water. When she questions, he says, really, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask me for living water. Now, when he says the gift of God, there's a lot of people who take this to be the gospel, the idea of salvation. The gift of God is that you can be saved. 
And it is true that salvation is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes that clear. However, in this context, the gift of God is Jesus himself. Think back to John 1. God sends Jesus into the world. God gives Jesus to fulfill all the promises he's made to his people. Jesus is the gift of God through whom, yes, comes salvation. But here it is Jesus who is the gift of God. Jesus, the gift of God, now offers her a gift. What's that gift? Water. We're going to see that that's a picture for eternal life, for salvation. So then we move on to her question. There's this growing respect. This, in, in addition to the curiosity, could he be greater than Jacob? I mean, Jacob dug the well. Look at verse 11. Though you don't have anything to draw with and the well is deep, how are you going to get the water? Are you going to dig a new well? Are you greater than Jacob who already dug this well for us? What's he talking about? Was this a physical reality or a spiritual reality? Think back to the conversation that we saw in John chapter 3 where Jesus uses the illustration of physical birth to talk about the transformation, the change that happens when we receive salvation. He's doing the same thing here. He's using water as a picture of eternal life. But the woman doesn't understand this yet. So Jesus moves on from the subject of Jacob, not really coming back to it, to point her to the fact that this is a spiritual reality. He says in verse 14, If you drink of this water, you'll never thirst, but this water will in you become a well of water springing up to eternal life. And at that point, it should have been clear that he's not talking about a physical well. Because you don't say to a person, I'm going to give you water, and then the water is going to burst forth from within you. That's not how a well works. A well is something external to the person. You bring the water up out of the well, but Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you the well. This reminds me of uh, a passage in Proverbs where it says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it is the wellspring of life. Jesus is going back, I think, perhaps alluding to that verse, perhaps not, and saying, if you receive this water that I will give you, you will not only possess it, but you will become one who passes it on to others. The woman is still confused. She still thinks in temporal terms, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming down to the well. This is hard work. Given her background, it was probably an, an, an awkward and a difficult thing for her to come draw water. She would have potentially been looked down upon even by her own people because of the way that she was living. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But she says, if I can just avoid having to come to the well every day, give me that. I, I want that. Jesus points her again. This is, we're not talking about physical things. We're talking about spiritual things. He says, verse 16... Go call your husband and come here. He's turning it away from what she thinks she needs physically to what she actually needs spiritually. Forgiveness and true life. So we see from this little section that Jesus is not just a, a, an unusual man in that he's talking with a Samaritan woman, not just a great man in that perhaps he can do something more or better or in the same way that Jacob the patriarch could do. Not even just a mere prophet, as we'll see in the next little section, but Jesus is moving her toward the recognition that he is in fact the Messiah, the one whom God has sent, 
the Savior of the world. We'll see that at the end of the passage. Jesus now, as the Messiah, demands worship. So he offers living water, eternal life, but he also demands worship. He confronts the woman with her primary sin. He says, you have correctly said, I have no husband, when she says, I have no husband. He says, you've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband, this you have said truly. So he's moving from the subject of physical realities to the subject of truth. Truth about sin, truth about worship, truth about who he is. In connection with this, what was the nature of her sin? It's possible that she was divorced for the wrong reasons and thus that was sin. But it's very clear at this point she's given up on the idea of marriage entirely and is now living with a man who's not her husband and committing either adultery or immorality depending on their previous status of being married or not. And so Jesus is saying not that people around you look down on you because you've been married five times, which I think is what maybe we tend to do in uh, modern society. We look at celebrities, for example, and their attitude toward marriage being a temporary thing for convenience. And so, you know, some of them have been married five, six, ten times. While people around her might have looked down on her for that, that's not the main thing Jesus is confronting her about. He's confronting her about the fact that right now you're sinning. Right now, you're living in immorality and potentially adultery because you're living with someone you're not married to as though you're married to that person. And he says, you know this to be true, and I know this to be true, and this is the reason I'm offering you the living water, and this is the reason that you need to turn to me. He accepts her confession is true at the end of verse 18. And so then she says, you know what, I'm going to move from curiosity and move from this respect that maybe he's as great or greater than Jacob to I'm going to address him as a prophet because he just met me. There's no way that he could know my past and my present unless he's some kind of a prophet. So we see this progression. He's an intriguing man talking to me. He's perhaps greater than the patriarch. Oh, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Let's ask him a theological question. Because then, what did she not have to do? She didn't have to deal with the issue of her sin if she can distract him by asking him a question that is interesting and that will take him away from the attention being on her. Here's the question. Where are we supposed to worship? Now, she doesn't do it maliciously like the Pharisees often did to trip him up, but she does do it in a way that I think accomplishes the same kind of effect. If Jesus condemns the Samaritan's worship, she's going to have a reason to say, well, here's another Jew looking down on us. I don't have to listen to him. If Jesus excuses their worship, then he's going to be contradicting what the Bible actually says is true. And he said... Let's talk about what's true. And so there's a little bit of a degree to which this may be a trap. Not malicious in the way that it was with the Pharisees, but a trap nonetheless. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus kind of answers her question. But he starts by pointing her past that. 
He says there's a day coming when it won't matter. The Jews were right. Verse 22. Salvation is from the Jews. God has given them the true system of worship. And yet, the focus is not on that, not on right now, but that both Jew and Samaritan need to worship God in the right way through the one whom He has sent, through the Messiah. What does this look like? God doesn't need temples or systems or priests or all of these sorts of things. Did He establish them? Yes. Does He need them? No. What does God ultimately and finally and specifically want? He wants you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, depending on the translation that you have, you may see it capitalized as spirit, capital S, and you may see it not capitalized, small s, as far as the nature of, is it through the Holy Spirit or is it, this is a spiritual kind of worship, as in not just a physical, external kind of thing? Both are true. Both are true that we cannot worship God apart from the Spirit's work. We saw that in chapter 3. We need spiritual life. And so, both are true in a biblical sense. Does it change what he's saying if we say you need to worship God by means of the Holy Spirit or you need to worship God spiritually? Not really. Both are pointing to the fact that you cannot do this on your own. Because if you're going to worship God spiritually, you must have experienced the life that the Spirit gives. And if you're going to worship God by the power of the Spirit, it's only because He's given you spiritual life. The two things are wrapped up together, so I don't know that we need to separate them harshly, uh, draw uh, this harsh line between them. What does it mean to worship God in truth? Well, truth is not defined according to ourselves, according to what we would like to be the case. He's saying, what has God said? God said, here's where I'm going to appoint my worship. He said, here's the one who's coming that you need to worship. So now the woman has to confront the truth of her sin and the truth of who Jesus is and not get caught up into arguments about is it this mountain or is it that mountain? Yes, it's this mountain, but that was never the point of it. The point of it was to point to Jesus who is coming, who is the one that you're supposed to have been worshiping all along. What's her response? I know that the Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. What does Jesus say? I who speak to you am. Now the he's in italics. That's not false, but it's supplied by the translators to clarify what's being said. But Jesus is basically saying, I am. Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. Now, there's a number of statements that Jesus makes throughout the book where he'll say things like, I'm the bread of life, or I'm the good shepherd. Here he just says, I am. There's several places in the book of John where he does that. So here's the question that the woman is going to have to answer for herself. Am I going to worship 
this man that I just met, who I first thought was an intriguing man, and then maybe as important as one of the patriarchs, and then probably a prophet, am I going to move past all of those human explanations for who he is to say that he is the Messiah, the God, the Savior of the world? John doesn't answer it right away. What does he do? The disciples show up. We'll look at them in just a moment. Jesus' audience here, this woman, was unlikely. Not just a woman, but a Samaritan idolater. And of the idolaters, also an immoral woman. Yet he offers her life. He called her to worship him as one of his followers. Nicodemus had been blind to that spiritual truth, but we'll see by the end of this section that this woman believes and many of those around her. The next little section, Jesus is going to say, you people of Judea won't believe unless you see miracles and signs. All he does is come to this woman and say, I know the details of your life. Believe me as the Messiah. And all of these people start believing in him. And with Nicodemus, he goes through this extended discussion and Nicodemus still says, I don't get it. In the next little section, at the end of chapter 4, he says, I have to do signs and miracles for you to even consider believing, and you still don't believe. And in the middle of that, we have someone who, from a human perspective, is the most unlikely person in the world to believe, who's going to believe. But before we get there, Jesus, the obedient son, calls his disciples to obedience. So Jesus, the gift of God, offers to give living water. Jesus, the Messiah, demands worship. Now Jesus, the obedient son, calls his own disciples to obedience. We have here another contrast because while this woman is talking to Jesus about important spiritual truths, not because she planned to, but because Jesus called her to, what are the disciples doing? Look back to verse 8. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. They weren't particularly interested in hearing Jesus teaching at this point. They weren't particularly interested in anything else. They were hungry and they wanted to go buy food. They get back. What's on their minds? We're close enough to being done that we can talk about lunch, right? You won't be too mad at me. My eighth graders got really mad when I would talk about it at 9.30 in the morning, so because they had an hour or so to an hour and a half to wait. They come back. What do they say? Eat! Rabbi, eat! We got food! He said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. They're all talking amongst themselves. Who gave him lunch? Did you give him lunch? I didn't give him lunch. How did he get food? So we go from this profound statement, I am, to a discussion about lunch. Or supper, depending on how you take it's about the sixth hour. That's all the disciples are focused on at this point. What's the woman doing at this point? She goes back to the village. Verse 28. Notice what she does in verse 28. She leaves her water pot. She's not worried about getting water out of the well anymore at this point. She's more concerned about this spiritual reality that she's been confronted with. Is it true? Is he the Messiah? I've got to go talk to somebody else about this. And then we come back to the disciples. 
in just a moment. But look, look at her words to the people around her. Come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And the way that the Greek is phrased, it's, it's a question that sort of implies a no. She's not yet fully believing that he is, but she's wondering, could he be? Kind of like we see the attitude of other people in the book of John. Can someone who do these miracles be anything other than the Messiah? We're not sure, but maybe. What do the, what do the Samaritans do? They come out of the city to come see Jesus. We go back to the disciples. The disciples were saying, eat, time for lunch. Profound spiritual realities happening over here. The disciples are like, time for lunch. I have food to eat you don't know about. How? Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus, the obedient son, has come to fulfill the will of his father. What is the will of his father? Well, we'll see more about that as we go through the rest of the book of John. But basically, the idea is this. To proclaim salvation to the people, to live a perfect life, to die, to be raised, to be exalted, to bring all those who hear his message, give them the right to become the sons of God, as we saw in chapter 1, and ensure that none of them are lost as he brings them to be with him someday. We'll see that in chapter 14. That's a really quick summary of what Jesus came to do. Right here it's focused on, look around you. You're worried about food? Look at the food that's growing in the fields right next to you. See that? You say it's four months until the harvest, and I tell you the harvest is right here and now. You know what the harvest was? It wasn't the grain out in the field. It wasn't the lunch that they brought back. It was the souls of the people in that Samaritan city who needed to be confronted with the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. And you know what? A lot of times we're like the disciples. I got to do this. I got this thing happening. This is going on tomorrow. Uh, I got I to go here. Look up. Look around you. If God says to Paul, I'm going to leave you in this city because I have many people in this city that need to hear about me. And if Jesus said to the disciples, look around you, the fields are white to harvest. You know where we're at, most of us? We believe that God can save people, but we haven't seen it in a long time. So we start to wonder if he really can. And so we stop telling people. And we stop putting ourselves in awkward positions with sinful people. I don't mean put ourselves in places where we're tempted. I just mean we tend to avoid sinners because they're difficult and frustrating and, and we don't like things about them and they remind us of our secret sins and, and they, they make fun of us. Whatever our reasons are, like the disciples, we get all caught up in the physical aspects of life we're more concerned with about what we're going to have for lunch than does this person that's standing right next to me know Jesus and, and you know, what's their eternal destiny. I think John weaves this together to make us wrestle with that reality. Amazing things that God wants to do in the world. Sometimes we're more worried about lunch. We continue through the story. Jesus urges his people to look, his disciples to look around him. Jesus had to go through Samaria, verse 4. Jesus had to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work, 
the work is to reap the harvest of souls that are ready. He says, verse 36, He who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. In this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There's many that he could be referring to, but given what we just saw recently about the ministry of John the Baptist, he's probably talking about John the Baptist at the end of chapter 3. John the Baptist comes, preaches repentance, doesn't see a whole lot of fruit in terms of long-lasting fruit before he, he's killed, he's martyred, and moves off the scene. But do you know who gets to see the fruit of John's preaching of repentance? The disciples do. Do you know who gets to see the fruit of Jesus' conversation with this woman? The disciples do. Did they have anything to do with it? Not really. And yet God allows them to share in the harvest. John said, my joy is made full when the bridegroom comes because I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus says, you didn't, you're not the reason for the harvest, but you get to share in the harvest along with those who have labored before you and in connection with God's power as he brings the harvest in. Last few verses about the Samaritans. And I'm jumping back and forth because the passage jumps back and forth. Look at verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. Do you know what John's doing here? John's putting the Samaritan woman in the group of people that we talked about when we did that overview of the book who testify to Jesus as the Messiah. Who testifies about Jesus as the Messiah? John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, God the Father, the disciples, the Samaritan woman. What's their what does she testify? Let's go back to what we were talking about in Sunday school. Sometimes we think we need a profound theological argument to speak about Jesus. What does this woman say? He told me everything I ever did. That's not like a theological treatise. That's just... He said I'm a sinner and he told me how I sinned. Only God could know these things. So when you go and talk to people about Jesus, don't be intimidated by the idea that you have to have all these clever arguments. I'm not saying don't think about it or prepare, but what are you supposed to do? Think back to chapter 1. Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter and brings him to Jesus. That's all that you and I are doing. It is not our job to argue them into believing that Jesus is. It is not our job to explain to them every last theological question, because notice what Jesus did. Did he get distracted when she asked the question about the temple? No. He said, all right, here's the answer. Let's move on. Here's what you need to deal with. And that's difficult, because we hear these distracting questions when we're witnessing to people, and we, we wonder, should I... Should I answer the question? Should I not answer the question? And the bottom line is this. If the question is leading the person away from and the conversation away from their need of Jesus and who Jesus is, it's probably a distraction. Don't let them drag you down that rabbit trail. All the woman does is say, he told me everything I ever did. They said, all right, let's go meet him. They come out from their village. They come to meet Jesus. What's their response? 
They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Who gave them that understanding? God did. That's not something that someone who's an idolater and an immoral person, whatever, just sort of pops up one day and says, you know what, Jesus is the Savior of the world, I'm going to believe him and follow him. That's God's power at work. God uses this sinful woman, and all of us are sinners. I'm not picking on her, I'm just speaking of the reality of what the text says about who she is. You and I are no better than her. We are all of us sinners apart from the grace of God. God uses a sinner to draw other sinners to meet Jesus and then to show them that Jesus is not just a Jewish man, a great patriarch, a prophet, but that he is Messiah, the gift of God, the I am, the Savior of the world. While the disciples are worried about lunch. While the religious leaders who have all the answers reject Jesus. While the people that Jesus grew up with who should have known better and seen God's power in his life say, eh, we don't want to follow him. So what about you and I? Are you like the disciples? There's a lot in this world to be interested in and not all of it is bad. But none of it is nearly as important as who Jesus is in telling people about him. Are you like the disciples, distracted by temporal things? Or are you like the woman who says, I don't have all the right answers. I'm not perfect. I don't even understand. My faith is weak. Help my unbelief. But I'm going to tell people about Jesus because I think he's the Messiah. In fact, now I know that he is. God can use and does use sinful people to point other sinful people to Jesus. But there's a degree to which they have to be willing to listen and ready to obey as Jesus called his disciples to obey, like Jesus himself was obedient to the will of God the Father. To look past physical illustrations of spiritual truths and see the spiritual truths themselves. To worship God, as we see earlier in the chapter, not with blind eyes and dead hearts, but in spirit and in truth, alive because we know who God is and are following after Him. Looking around us to the people that we've probably overlooked before because we say, well, even if that person believes in Jesus, what can they possibly add to the church? They don't have money. They don't have a powerful position. They don't have whatever. And hopefully we don't think that way, but I think there's a part of us that's tempted to think that way. What good does it do for God to save that person? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard because that person's life is such a mess. It's going to be so much work for them to follow God the way that they're supposed to. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make things awkward when I have to sit next to them in the pew and they, they say something that's like, completely off the wall because they don't know any better. Those are the, the kinds of messes and problems and issues that churches ought to be dealing with because we have new people 
who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus, not necessarily just people who have grown up in church all their lives and kind of go from this church to that church to the other church. I'm not saying it's sinful. I'm not saying if, if you come from another church to our church, we don't want you. But I am saying there ought to be as many more people coming into the church who never knew Jesus at all as there are people moving from another church for whatever reason. And the only way that that's going to happen is if we are faithful to doing what Jesus does in this passage, which is to take someone and lead them from their misunderstanding to the truth of the gospel, to do what the woman does in this passage, which is to go find other people and say, hey, come meet Jesus. So are we going to do that? Are we going to see that Jesus, as the true Israel, brings salvation to the world and say, hey, world, you need to meet Jesus. Or are we going to be happy that we have lunch? Let's pray. God, as I look at this passage, I am convicted by the fact that it is so easy to be distracted by the many comforts and conveniences and things that we do every day, some of them because we need to, whether it be work or paying bills or those sorts of things, some of them because we just want to, because we prefer to be entertained and to have fun and to do what feels good to us. We can get so caught up in all of those things that we forget why you put us here, which is to worship you in spirit and in truth, to call others to worship you one sinner to another, saying, come meet Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. Pray that you would give us grace in this task. In Christ's name, amen.